This is the show with Cannon Brown. This is Legendary Mindset with Jake P. Welcome to the Keeper Pen. I'm Jake Scott, and I am thrilled to introduce my new podcast, Cattle Bros. Is the show with Cannon Brown. You know, breeding livestock always has had, for me, it's had more to do with convictions and in, in believing in, in the kind of livestock that you like than, than, it, than it makes sense. You know, it doesn't always make sense, but if you're convicted in what you believe uh, and, and have the sort of staying power to see it through, uh, I think that uh, you'll be rewarded. And Swagger, for me, that, that, was, that was his reward. I think he was nine uh, when we had to put him down and uh, that was, there's no doubt that was one of the saddest days ever for me. Um, but it was time and, uh, he sure didn't know me anything at that point. That last few minutes might've been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? What's up guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Cannon Brown, and I have an incredible guest this week. You saw it in the title, Mr. Jesse Heimer. If you're not in the hog industry, just take my word for it. He's kind of a big deal, okay? And if you're in the hog industry or you know his name, you know I'm right, okay? This is the guy. This is the guy in my eyes. He's His marketing, uh, just his style of selling hogs, uh, marketing hogs, marketing his brand, building his brand, it's incredible. And do I brown nose in this episode a little bit? Maybe, okay? Just get past it. You know I have to. Okay, if, if you were in my end, you'd brown nose a little too. Don't lie to yourself. I know you would. All right, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Mr. Jesse Heimer. Follow at the show pod on all the social medias. Check out Legendary Mindset with Jake P. Richardson. Check out The Keeper Pen with Maddie Caldwell and Jenna Wheeler. And finally, check out Cattle Pros with Jake Scott, all a part of the Barra Media Network. That's it that I have for you guys right now. I talk too much as it is. All right, let's do it. Mr. Jesse Heimer. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Well, Jesse, you've been uh you've been pretty busy the past couple of weeks in a time where people haven't really been busy in a while with shows. <laughs> uh it's it's got to feel good to be back on the road. Well, yeah, it does, but Anybody that's raising livestock understands that it never really stopped uh, for us. I mean, the, you know, the production side of it never changed. And there's a lot of mouths to feed around here every day. And uh, that part continued. So, For sure. I mean, uh, you got to, like, maintain your work. And, and livestock producers, I mean, it, the world didn't really change for people in ag. I mean, that's what I was noticing. I mean, all, all over social media, you saw people just crazy going crazy over oh i just i mean everything's different now the grocery stores are different but in terms of like a livestock producer their role really hasn't changed much it hasn't i think it was it was gratifying to see folks appreciate uh agriculture just a little bit more in a time when you know grocery store shelves weren't quite as full as they expected uh restaurants weren't quite as prepared as they used to be 
you know, the whole supply chain was in flux and it was, it was interesting to watch the public reaction to that. Uh, we live in a country where, you know, food is readily, readily available and it's very cheap and folks don't think a lot about it. But I think we've seen a paradigm shift in a way with, uh, with the public coming back to, uh, to their senses relative to food. I mean, you, you watch the restaurant industry rise over the last decade to a point where, you know, people just didn't cook, uh, at all. And, uh, you know, they were forced to stay home and forced to stay in and they had to find a way to, to relearn that process. And I think that's been interesting to witness. So I'll tell you what I, my cooking skills have gotten so much better since quarantine and I consider (laughs) myself a good cook before quarantine, but it's, it's gotten tenfold since. Well, you'll be more prepared for the next time around. <laughs> that's that's for sure. You're right. No, I think you're right. It's it was interesting, and I work at a grocery store. I'm a butcher at a grocery store. Really? So, yeah, I I'm still uh, I'm getting my bachelor's degree, uh, and I I work at a local uh, grocery store, and I'm I just cut meat all day, so I saw it firsthand, and it was it's been very very interesting to see. Uh, the influx in customers, I mean, we're not having to worry about sales anymore. We don't have to worry about, uh, I mean, when it first started, we dang sure didn't have to worry about throwing anything out. I mean, we were running Mm -hmm. out of product, legitimately running out of all of our product, um, by 11 AM every day, like that first two weeks, it was nuts. We, we've seen a, you know, very big uptick in demand locally for, you know, for pork, uh, people reaching out for you know, they want pigs to butcher, they want pigs to feed out to butcher. And it's just, it's created this really crazy sense of insecurity about having enough meat, which is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of meat in the supply chain, but they just have this sense that, that, that they want it available. And I think it's, I think the most interesting thing for me is I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a, in a household where it was just common practice to have a deep freeze full of meat. I mean, we had pork on hand my entire childhood. You know, often we would have beef or chicken or whatever else was available. And, you know, my parents' generation, that's that was common. I mean, that was normal. And you, you were supposed to be prepared for things like this. My generation uh, isn't. And, you know, it's, it's not common to have a freezer full of meat for my generation. And those younger than me, that wasn't the normal practice. And I think we're seeing people start to think about that again, which is, which is really a crazy phenomenon. When you think about grocery stores and the supply chain and how things are set up today, it's really bizarre to think people are worried about having a freezer full of meat. It just, it shows how reliant we all are on the system. I mean, that's, and I know that's been just, that's been beaten down and and said by every single person that's had an opinion over this pandemic and what it's caused. But it really has just exposed everything that we're just kind of super, super reliant on these little things that nobody knows about, like the supply chain. Like uh, no one thought no one thought that there weren't going to be enough trucks when it came down to it. And that's what the problem in my area was. We, we had all the product in the world. We just couldn't get it anywhere. Mm hmm. It's a, uh, okay, that's enough of the pandemic. We don't need to talk about it. But you're, I mean, you come from that area where um, I bet there's a lot more people in your neck of the woods that had that freezer full of of meat. I mean, I, I still kind of live in a metropolitan area where people were trying to find, were trying to call people like you, trying to find 
pigs to get slaughtered or something like that and realizing that all the butcher shops were backed up till next year yeah that's and we're, and we're still facing that i actually have a have an appointment next week uh at, at the place that we've used for the last 20 years and i think we have an appointment next week we don't have another appointment until october and and then again not until after the first of the year so that's you know, you, you used to be able to call and get an appointment within the next month, yeah, uh, or the next few weeks, and and now it's you know literally months out, and that's that's been a big adjustment for me because I wasn't, I certainly wasn't prepared to schedule out that far in advance or you know think about those sort of things that far in advance as we were trying to adjust on the fly. For sure. Uh, now, how much of like. Uh... When turmoil hits, now I know you're you're predominantly in the show deal now, but I mean you're mm-hmm. a third generation um, on the on the hog operation, the family hog operation. In this turmoil, how much of your producer side comes out and and looks for the worst, or can you kind of just sit back and and be secure that the show pig deal is going to work out? I I I wouldn't use the word secure. Um, I would use the word optimistic. I think, uh, okay, yeah. you know, most, most people in agriculture have to remain, you know, they have to be an eternal optimist. Uh, that's just, that's just kind of how we operate. We, we hope for the best, we prepare for the worst. And, and that's across all sectors of agriculture, whether you're in livestock or crops or however you choose to, uh, to tackle the situation. But the, the junior livestock program has proven to be incredibly resilient. And uh, the show pig business has been, you know, it's, it's been incredible over the last decade. Uh, I got back in the show pig business again in 2006. And where the industry has come since then is pretty phenomenal. And really the, the 10 years prior to that, uh, as I exited, you know, my show career ended, I think, in 2001. And that stretch, you know, that decade from 2000 to 2010 was, was really a huge growth decade for the industry and and what we've seen in the last 10 years again has been phenomenal and so i you know i think that uh i still have a great deal of optimism for the show pig industry uh but to say that i felt secure through all of this would probably be an overstatement um i i think that to my core and to my roots uh i've i'm secure about uh the production side of it in the sense that the general public has to eat and and they're going to continue to consume protein around the world. So that side of it is secure. Um, but we've seen, you know, several of our shows get canceled around the country. And I think we've seen how fragile uh, the, the junior livestock program can be uh, as we're reliant on FFA and extension state funding and those traditional organizations that have historically funded the junior livestock program, um, if you will, state fair county fairs, you know, the Midwest is, is really structured around 4-H and FFA, the extension services, the FFA program, and their outreach is historically what has driven our show structure. And we've always been reliant on that. And I think what we've seen in, in all of this is that it's fragile. Uh, it's very fragile in those, uh, in those areas where we're reliant on, you know, state and, and federally funded entities uh that are that, that aren't dictated locally i mean really they're they aren't controlled by local folks and you know we've seen that all over the country where 
or decisions have been out of our control. And when I say are, I'm talking about my colleagues uh, that are in the, the show livestock business. You know, we haven't been really in control of the decisions that have been made that affect our livelihood. So I think what's been most impressive to me through all of this is we've seen resilient um, folks all, all over the country that have stepped up uh, in light of cancelizations and in light of really disappointment uh, from coast to coast that have stepped up, have created shows and opportunities for our junior kids to compete. And, you know, I think it's really amazing when you look around and, and you see shows happening. Uh, today, there was a, you know, a replacement show that happened in Illinois. There was one that happened in Ohio. Uh, there was one that happened in Wisconsin just today on an average Monday in August. Uh, there was a show in California that just wrapped up over the weekend that was that was new, that was a replacement. And all of that happened uh, because folks in this industry stepped up and, and adapted uh, to make it happen. And I think that's pretty amazing to step back and, and really view that in a bigger light, uh, especially at a time when, you know, Major League Baseball is struggling to have games. Uh, college football's in turmoil. Uh, all of these things that are just standard. Uh, for our everyday society uh, are struggling to happen. And I think it's pretty amazing and impressive that, you know, the junior livestock program has been so resilient through all of this and have found ways to provide opportunities for the kids and the families that are heavily vested in the whole process. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jesse. And I think you're right uh, on the whole, I, I mean, a lot of these programs are set by people that are kind of out of our reach but this, uh, as much uh, difficulty as this pandemic has brought us, it also brought us the opportunity to kind of privatize uh, some of these areas and set up virtual shows, set up virtual show circuits. I mean, there's there's legitimate show circuits that are all virtual right now, um, and and kids are loving it. I mean, it it was their only option at the time, so they're gonna like their options, but. I think this has given a lot of opportunity to different aspects of the show industry that we've never seen before. And uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of good can come out of this time. I really do. I think I think this has opened a lot of people's eyes to maybe the future, the the next future of the industry, because the times like this, I don't think they're going to stop. I mean, if it's not a pandemic, there's going to be other things that come around. And we need to learn to adapt and to overcome. I think we get too stagnant sometimes. For sure, and this is this has been a great opportunity to to reset a lot of things. Uh, you know, the standard. You know, if I heard it once, I heard it ten times during our county fair last week. That you know, folks ask. You know, new families will ask, "Well, why do we do this and why do we do that?" And the the standard answer, and I think this is in a lot of things in, in life, is the standard answer is, well, we've we've always done it that way. And if we've always done it that way, that doesn't mean that it's that it's right. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's the only way. And all of these circumstances have forced us to reevaluate the way we do things and the why and the how and the what. And the result of that have been some pretty, pretty creative, some pretty neat things that have that have happened. And, you know, for example, these replacement shows these youth expos that have popped up all over the country. I mean, the, the cool part going forward is, you know, may, maybe next year, that means that in the state of California, maybe they have two major shows in the summertime, maybe Wisconsin and, and Ohio and, and Illinois, these show, these states might have two state fairs or two, you know, big national or big major shows in the summertime that they 
haven't had before. They haven't had those options. So I think those are those are neat uh, outcomes from some of this. And you know, as a guy that's in the business uh, raising and selling show pigs, it's it's exciting to know that there will continue to be uh, options for kids and families to to show. Yeah. Change is not different to you. I mean, you like you said before, you've you stopped your show career in the early 2000s, but you've continued to watch what has become of the industry in the last 20 years. I mean, you said the first 10 years, like 2000 to 2010 was crazy, and then 2010 to 2000 now has been even crazier. It has, I just, I couldn't imagine seeing it evolve from the outskirts. I was still pretty young. I, I'm, I'm almost 24 now. Uh, mm-hmm. So that gives you a range on my age. Um, I, you know Kevin Rogers. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So Kevin and I went yep. to high school together. We're we're the same age. We're 23 days apart, basically. Gotcha. So it, it just must have been just crazy to see and stand and be a, just be a bystander watching the industry grow and evolve like that. Because, I, I mean, I know everything's grown. Every industry has grown. But the hog industry has just... It's been crazy, hasn't it? It has. You know, as a as a young as a young kid showing in 4-H and FFA, my my options basically were the county show. Uh, there were a couple really uh, random jackpot shows in Missouri that would happen over the course of a summer. But I mean, they were random. They were sporadic. They were never consistent. Uh, you know, jackpot circuit was something we had never thought of in the state of Missouri. So we had our county show, uh, our state fair which was larger than life to me. And then the only other national show that was kind of a, a staple part of a Missouri kids show career was the, the American Royal. So those, those three events really sort of, I mean, that was the whole thing for me as a 4-H, a 4-H kid in Missouri. And, you know, the NGSA was formed. I was part of that steering committee that helped uh, bring that to light. And that was a really neat process to be part of. And as that started, uh, then you had a national organization that was providing a national junior show for kids of all ages to come. I mean, I think one the, one of the biggest things that we've seen happen in in the show pig business is the the eight year old or nine year old age barrier that 4-H mandated nationwide came down with the advent of jackpot circuits and the NGSA, which provided an outlet for kids to start earlier to start younger. Prior to that, really, the North American in Louisville was the only place where you could take your four or five-year-old kid and, and get them experience in a big ring. And so when the NJSA and, and these jackpot circuits came along, all of a sudden now kids got to start the process and really get a taste for it at a younger age. Families could get started earlier. They could get more experience earlier. And, and the result of that is a, a very competitive industry. And I think to take that one step further now, as we're in 2020, you've got a, a set of parents who showed and who were on the cusp, cusp of that growth uh, for our industry. So, you know, I showed uh, 2001 was the, the end of my career. So, you know, the 90s really were, were when I showed. And, you know, my contemporaries, the, the, the moms and dads today that were juniors when I we're showing, you know, their kids are the ones showing now. And so we've got third generation parents uh, who truly believe in the junior livestock program. And, and that's why they're competitive. That's why they're invested as families in the process. And that's why we, we have a super 
um, intense uh, show pig industry right now, in my opinion, because we're, you know, we're on the second and third generation of parents now who see value in the process and they want their kids to experience the same things that they did. And uh, because they believe in, in the outcome of what happens when a junior kid, you know, gets through uh, basically 10 or 12 years of 4-H and FFA and, and they go to college and they enter the workforce and they've got that experience behind them. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it too. I mean, Jesse, you're just hitting all these on the nail. Are you kidding me? <laughs> did, did you practice these? Okay. When you were in 4-H, were you guys, you guys were raising production hampshires, basically just for, just for market. I mean, you guys weren't raising any show pigs or were you at the time? So I grew up on a, what I would call a pretty traditional Midwestern family farm. Uh, dad had a hundred, 150 commercial sows, uh, row cropped, uh, 400 acres or so of corn and soybeans, um, we grew some chickens out in the summertime. Uh, we did all the things that a, that a Midwest family did. And by 1990, dad, uh, dad had barely survived the eighties, uh, like mm-hmm. most folks in the Midwest and the future in his eyes, wasn't super bright for our farm, our size. And at that point he made the decision to cash rent the, the tillable acres, uh, downsize drastically downsize the hog operation and uh, started an accounting business uh, in town that focused on ag accounting and, and farm clients that he had started to accumulate over the years. And that's the career path that, that he went down. At the same time, I was, uh, I was getting old enough to really have a strong interest in the, in the pigs and the pig farm. Dad had bought some Hampshires, had used some inheritance that he got uh, to buy some Hampshire gilts for my brother, sister, and I to raise 4-H pigs. So we had a few of these purebred pigs, purebred sows. And basically we, we took the few purebred sows that we had and a handful of the, the commercial sows that, that had enough quality that were left and combined those to, to really start a herd or continue a herd to raise pigs for us to show. So through the 90s, that, that herd continued to evolve. And, and that was, uh, at one point, it, it became Show Me Genetics. And so that was the first... Uh, first farm here that or the first brand I guess if you will of show pigs uh, were show me genetics and I had that herd through through high school through college and those would have been the sows that were dispersed in 2003 so you said for a time that you left the industry mm-hmm. when, when was that period from 2003 to 2006 uh, technically, and I graduated college. Uh, Jeff Flangmeyer was actually at High Point then, and uh, that was back in High Point's heyday as as one of the mainstays in the in the boar stud business. And was involved in selling semen, selling show pigs. Uh, made several trips to the Southwest that fall, and then uh, after the spring season, I came back. I came back to Missouri and uh, started another business. Then uh, actually later that year, I went to work for a meat company. And that's where my sort of my passion for the meat business came from was the the year and a half that I spent working for that meat company. Um, did a couple other oddball things over that uh, time period. And then 2006, I had the itch that I wanted to scratch to get back in the pig business. You've got a passion for the meat industry. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, like what what aspects of it? I mean, I, I just think that, 
I mean, those that know me really well know that I like good food and know that I like to eat. And uh, so, you know, from that side of it, I've always had an appreciation for quality. And the year that I, the year and a half that I spent working for U.S. Wellness Meats, which at the time was was a very small business. In fact, I was the only employee. Today, they must employ, I don't know, 40, 50 people probably. Uh, U.S. Wellness Meats is based in Canton, Missouri. Uh, was started, I think, five uh, five guys started the company. Uh, started actually as grassland beef. Uh, it was a grass-fed beef company uh, at its core. Today, they sell a whole range of, of meat and, and other products direct to the consumer. So I, I really had my first taste of the direct-to-consumer business, uh, especially online. And uh, e-commerce back then was a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, we're talking, you know, in the early 2000s. And it was a great experience to, to learn that business and to learn a lot about the internet and learn a lot about marketing and uh, retail marketing and uh, and just the meat business in general. I was exposed to a lot of things uh, during that time. And uh, I just, I've, I've always had sort of, uh, I guess, some passion for it. We, you know, our Berkshire program that we have here, uh, it gets some notoriety because our Berkshires have been super competitive in the show ring. But, you know, what most folks don't realize is all the Berkshires that aren't show pig quality, uh, and especially the barrows or the gilts that aren't good enough to retain for sows. Uh, I mean, they, they end up in a, in a Berkshire meat program and they're sold for a premium and end up in lots of neat places around the country. That's awesome, dude. I love Berkshire meat. Um, my uncle owned some mangalitas for a while. That real really? hairy pig. Oh yeah. Uh, those things are wild, dude. I'll tell you right now. He, <laughs> he got those in from like Austria. I'm pretty sure had 20 of these suckers right next to my show pigs. They would farrow out like in dirt. Like you wouldn't even know when these things were pregnant or not. They would, because they were just large. They would just farrow out and you just have to, okay, we got to get them in a crate somehow. Oh, they yeah, were Luke, feral. Luke, Luke Lidner dabbled with a few of those in Texas. So I they, was exposed to some mangalistas. They're pretty cool looking when they're babies. They got those like, they look like feral hogs. Like they have the stripes and stuff. They're pretty sweet. Yeah, they they definitely wouldn't make the sift in the show pig arena, but I don't think so. You should probably try it though. I mean, if you're into the hog meat, <laughs> they've you got should... a pretty distinctive flavor. Uh, I think you'd be the one to do it, Jesse. If if anybody's going to do it in this industry, <laughs> you're the one that can bring it in. I mean, if you, if, I think if you bring it up at an NJSA board meeting, hey guys, I really think we should add this. Uh, what about NJSA M? What what do you think about that? Mangalitz at the end there. I tell you what, I've got my hands full raising hamsters. I'm not okay, sure I that's fair. one more headache to my plate. That's fair. Now, uh, we're going to talk Heimer hamsters now because I, I can guarantee probably most of the listeners are like, all right, let's stop with this COVID talk. I want to know why the guy, how the guy built his incredible business. So we're going to get to that now. I wish, okay, I wish I had... Um, the marketing genius to just put an H dude. Like you literally put an H H and it's beautiful. And I, I know I'm brown nosing here and everybody's going to say, everybody's <laughs> going to say I'm brown nosing here, but dude, you put an H H in white and blue, gray and blue. And it's magical, dude. I just got to give you props right now. Well, thanks. So 
in terms of your marketing plan for Heimer Hampshire's, in terms of like changing the way that show pigs are sold, what was your mindset coming back into the industry? I mean, it seems like you couldn't do it the same way that everybody else was doing it. You had to do it a different way. What was your mindset? I mean, people that are listening to this might think that there was some grand plan when I got back in in 2006, you know, relative to HH and the brand and the logo and, and all of that. And I, I appreciate the, the compliment. I, but, but there really wasn't. And I think that uh, when, when you're my age and you reflect back on some of the things that you've done and, and those that are listening, when they reflect, reflect back, I mean, you'll know that, you know, nothing ever happens quite as quick as you think it might. Uh, it's always sort of a, a progression of things. And I, I think the best way for me to answer what you're asking is that I, I try to be an early adopter. I try to be um, adaptive to new things. I try to sort of reevaluate and adjust. And and I think that, you know, we have tried to do things differently. Uh, we, you know, we started selling online Um as early as, as a lot of folks did. And I think that that approach, um, we were, you know, we were an early adopter in that. I think that, uh, some of the other marketing things that we've done to bring awareness to the junior livestock program, I feel like have been, uh, have been unique and have been creative. And, you know, those are some of the things that I'm most proud of, but to suggest that I had some great big grand plan, uh, when I got back in the pig business would be, would be somewhat of a stretch. I'm kind of happy you say that now because uh, a different man would have stayed on the phone call and said, you know what? I had this plan back in 2001 when I ended my show career. I knew I was going to do it this way and everything. But I appreciate you saying that because sometimes if you just believe in something and work your ass off, good things are going to come. And I think you're right. You you are an early adopter. And I think I think you're an innovator. And I, I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but an early adopter is an innovator. And I think that you've brought, maybe you haven't innovated things in the whole world, but you've innovated things in the industry. And I know it wasn't a grand plan and stuff like that. Uh, but the way that you bro brought multimedia into the picture, I mean, those those videos that you brought into the industry, those were the first of their kind. Um, I think that you've, uh, th there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be attributed to you. You, we could probably attribute podcasts to you just for <laughs> just you bringing in multimedia. I know I'm going to get messages, dude. You're all the way up Jesse Heimer's butt right now, but here's the deal folks. <laughs> here's the deal. I'm telling it how it is. Okay. And I don't have any skin in the game. I don't buy hogs anymore. I don't feed out any hogs anymore. I don't have any kids. I'm I'm just saying, I'm a bystander. I'm saying, I, I know you didn't have a grand plan, but I appreciate uh, that you are an early adopter, that you have brought these different aspects from outside of our industry into the industry. And I think it can only go up from here. I, I agree. And, and I think that's, that's, I mean, that's why I believe in it. That's why we do what we do. And I, I think that, you know, the, the video approach that we did, uh, at the end of the day, it was, it was to highlight the positive effects of the junior livestock program. I mean, we live in a day and time in a society where we spend so much time talking about the negative and, you know, the negative stories get the publicity, 
those are the ones that are on the nightly news and and those are the ones that seem to get the most traction even on social media today uh, we don't share positive news enough uh, we don't talk about the good things enough and those videos really were an effort to highlight all of the positive outcomes that come from the junior livestock program and the kids that are experiencing uh, the process and the project and hopefully uh, what they can contribute to society when they're done. Marketing genius. That's all I'm going to say about it. You, NJSA hadn't been started when you were showing, right? Correct. Uh, at, at, towards the end, it, it started. So, I mean, I, sh I showed uh, the very first NJSA show was in West Lafayette. Um, I believe the next one was in Columbus, Ohio. Either the second or third one was in Columbus. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that one. And then uh, eventually it ended up in Louisville. But it, it started right there at the tail end of my show career. How has it been watching the NJSA and, and how that has evolved throughout the years? I mean, with Expo, Expo was a monster. Um, I mean, not the past two years because we've had some problems, but it, it's probably been... I mean, like we've been saying, it's just, it's been great to see youth programs outside of 4-H and FFA, not taking anything away from 4-H and FFA, but it's been great to watch youth organizations like NJSA uh, and CPS, Team Purebred, all that jazz. It's been great to watch them grow. And I, I have to uh, think that you just being kind of on the outside, I mean, you were, you said you were part of it when it was kind of coming up. Uh, it has to be just great to watch more and more kids. I think they're when I was a when I was on the junior board, they had thirteen thousand kids, I, and I have no idea what they're up to now. I don't I don't know the numbers either. Um, I was I was the first president of the NJSA. Uh, I was on the steering committee uh, with a group of, of really awesome people. Uh, I remember sitting around the boardroom at the uh, National Swine Registry in West Lafayette that summer. Uh, talking about uh, some of the things that are happening today. And, and, you know, at the time they seemed way out of the realm of possibility and today they're reality. So that part's really neat. Uh, to me, the NJSA, uh, you know, a couple things that can be attributed to its growth. Uh, number one, I feel like uh, geography has, has, has changed. I mean, it, it used to you know, the Midwest used to have its its own sort of show season and its own identity. And, you know, everyone outside of the Midwest really wasn't involved. And the Southwest, again, had its own identity. The West Coast did, you know, and so on and so forth. And all these geographical regions were their own regions. And there, there really wasn't a lot of crossover. And I think the NJSA has really brought everyone together to, to uh, you know, it's a national organization and, and we compete nationally. And, you know, if, if the National Junior Show in Des Moines was one thing, you know, a few weeks ago, it was it was a national event. There were folks there from all over the country, whether the health department liked it or not, uh, they were there. And uh, I think the NJSA has, has really done that. The other thing I think that has really transpired in the, the shopping industry is it's lost its seasonality. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, raising show pigs used to be a lot like a cow-calf guy. You had a, a spring crop and a fall crop. Uh, the spring crop is what we sold for the summer shows. The fall crop is what we sold for the winter shows. And, and that was it. And, I, you know, I tell folks all the time that want to be in the show pig business that, you know, you can be as busy as you want to be. And if, you know, if you want to service uh, the entire country and if you want to service, um, you know, the, the, the larger market, uh, there's a show somewhere every weekend in this country today. 
and it wasn't that way 10 or 20 years ago. So uh, the seasonality that we used to sort of plan around in the show pig world has changed. Uh, and I think the NJSA is a big reason for that because of, you know, there's regional shows uh, throughout the year. The, the national shows that happen have really changed the show pig calendar uh, from a breeding standpoint. And I think all of those changes have been very responsible for the growth in our business uh, for breeders, uh, boar studs, feed companies. I mean, everyone that's associated with the junior livestock program has benefited from that growth. I never even thought about that. Like there's pro there probably is a show every single weekend, uh, in the country now. I mean, not for like the past three to four months, but like when, when things were going, I, there probably was a show every single weekend. That's crazy to think about. Um, because it, it, you're right. I mean, it, it, it wasn't like that, but I think that these youth organizations have pushed the message out. And we've been able to do that with regional shows and stuff like that. Um, I think also it, it comes down to you guys as breeders and producers too, spreading the word. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about, I mean, all the top guys, even, even the guys that are raising them to their communities. It all comes down to you guys making high quality products, high quality um, animals for, for kids to learn how to take care of them and use for their projects. I mean, that's what it comes down to really. It's really good for these youth organizations to spread the word, but what it comes down to is you guys just doing the right thing and creating high quality projects for these guys. Correct. We, I mean, we have a responsibility to, to provide the vehicle, if you will. I think that's the that's the word that gets used the most about, about a show pig is that it's a vehicle or, you know, whether it's a show pig or a show calf or lamb goat, whatever, uh, you know, they're the vehicle uh, for the project or for the kid uh, to experience the things that, that we so often talk about, you know, whether it's responsibility or work ethic, um, confidence, the ability to interact with others. I mean, the, the list is, is really long. Um, most of the things in that list, though, I think are they're they're a they're they they are a result of the actual interaction that happens amongst kids uh, that happen at livestock shows, and that's that's the part that saddens me the most about these shows that gets canceled, and it's the part that was the most fun to watch in Des Moines a month ago, the interaction between the kids. Um, you know, I, I said it several times over the week. I, I think the kids were excited to be showing again. But I, I truly believe they were more excited to be somewhere with their friends for the week having fun. And they they had a great time. They they did all, did all the things they'd normally do at a show, but I, I really think they appreciated it more than they ever have. You know what? You're right. Now that I'm thinking of it, like, and I know that we've talked about this before on the podcast, I'm pretty sure, or I have, uh, those are the times that I remember at a show, just hanging out with my friends. I mean, I really, I have some banners from when I won, but I, it saddens me to say that I don't really remember the handshakes in the ring with the judge. I mean, maybe there's just a lot of anxiety and adrenaline happening at that point in time, but I can't really remember those moments, but I do remember celebrating with my friends after 
walking around the the barn with my banner and and hugging everybody and stuff like that. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's those relationships uh, that people really rely on, and those are not being fulfilled right now. No, they're not. Uh, but it's it's going to get better. Uh, I you know, and I think we've seen over the course of the summer that there's lots of folks working really hard to provide those opportunities and those chances. And you know, I I I, I take that uh, that opportunity very serious. That you know, you said providing providing the you know the pigs for these kids. I mean, that's that's um, that's something that I don't take lightly. Uh, and, and it's, it's a privilege uh, for us to have that opportunity. And, you know, I, I feel pretty fortunate that, you know, this is this is our livelihood. Um, I, I tell folks when I get a chance to speak to young people, uh, in 2003, when I graduated college, I didn't, I didn't really have anyone around me in my inner circle uh, that was sitting there telling me to, you know, number one, stay in the hog business. Number two, you can, you can make a living in the hog business. Number three, uh, you could, you know, you could raise your family um, in the hog business. I mean, there, that 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 wasn't the reality in 2003, and so a lot's changed since then. And, and you know, today I feel pretty fortunate that we get to do this. Yeah, and you've made some pretty incredible things uh, out of it that aren't even in the show industry. I mean, your the judging workouts that you put on uh, are super cool. I mean, those always get a lot of hype over social media, and it's. I, I love how you outfit everybody in, in t-shirts and stuff like that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever, when I was in Juco, we never went to a Heimer workout. I don't think they were happening at the time, or maybe my judging coaches did just didn't like us enough. Um, but I wish I could have gone to one, dude. I really wish I could have. I wanted one of those shirts, man. <laughs> like my roommate right now, he, was, he went to Butler, or my ex-roommate, actually. I just moved out. Um, shout out to Joseph Fickett. But sometimes he wears that shirt, and I'm just like, God damn it. You know, I yeah. want one of those shirts. Yeah. Well, you got to make that stuff cool enough for nobody will wear it. So <laughs> well, you're right. Yeah. I mean, you're a hundred percent right. But just the, uh, uh, I think that, um, you've just created something really, really cool. And then you've allowed people to kind of take a, like a, a little sneak peek into it. I, I love those judging workouts. I mean, not just yours, but I, we went to a bunch in junior college and I love those judging workouts because you just get like a, it, it's not really an inside look into the producer's uh, a closet per se, but you get it, you get it behind the curtain a little bit into, into what the producer thinks or what his operation looks like, how he does things. I always really appreciated those judging workouts all to like look at the stock too, but also to just to mm-hmm. see how the producers did stuff. And I, I wish, I, I wish that we could do more of that uh, here at the farm. I think the challenge for judging workouts, it's, it's, I mean, it, it was probably, uh, I, I, I guess I should say the cha- the continued challenge of judging workouts or really any exposure at farms is, is just simply biosecurity. Uh, yeah. For us, it's, it's not always a time thing. It's how do we, you know, how do we bring a judging team in? How do we, how do we give them a chance to see what we do? Uh, without overexposing them or overexposing us, and I think that's that's always the challenge. Uh, we had a you know we had our south sale here in in June at the farm, and it was a really fun event. And you know, anytime we have an event like that at the farm, it's always uh, you know you hold your breath, hoping that uh, hoping that you're not overexposed to uh, to a bug. Um, 
that might be detrimental to production and uh you know it's just a risk you have to take if if you want folks to come to the farm and have a good time and an experience uh if you as you said to experience what happens um on the hill or at the farm uh you, you've got to open it up and let them come and so that's what we've chosen to do and uh, the judging workouts, though, uh, those are important. And, uh, you know, the, the livestock judging program was was one of my only regrets in life was not doing that in college. And, uh, you know, I tell judging teams when I have a chance to talk to them that that's that's a regret. And I applaud their decision to do that. And, you know, I feel like uh, there's never been uh, more need for free evaluators in all species. And, you know, especially in the show pig side of things, uh, the, the judging pool isn't super deep. Uh, we don't have, and this is kind of goes back to, uh, this is a little bit of a soapbox here, but this goes back to what I talked about earlier with 4-H and FFA. It, it used to be we had, you know, a talent pool of judges that included extension folks. It included ag teachers. It included actual producers. And, and then it included, you know, folks from the judging academia sector and all of those folks were part of a judging pool that was pretty big and they, they got experience and it, it didn't seem like you had to look real hard to find a judge. Uh, today's show pig industry has become so specialized in what we do. Uh, you know, the folks that are the most familiar with what's going on are the ones that are in the trenches. And so, you know, a lot of my colleagues, uh, my competitive colleagues uh, are the ones that are sorting the shows and uh, we, we, we don't have enough uh capable, qualified, confident judges uh, that can get in the ring and sort pigs. And so, you know, the junior livestock judging program, uh, the livestock judging program is is the breeding ground really for that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd hope that I can continue to support it best I can. How do we get more confident, competent hog judges in the show ring? Just keep feeding well, them to JUCOs and senior colleges? Well, that's the million-dollar question uh, yeah. because I, I don't really believe that the judging program uh, does everything for those folks to get them and, you know, to transition them from, from that program to the show ring. Agreed. Um, because there's such a difference between deciding which one needs to be one, two, three, and four in a class in a judging contest and then getting in the show ring that day and, uh, understanding how they should fit together based on what's driven at you and, and the circumstances of, of how they look that day in the show ring. So there's a, there's a lot of differences there and I don't, I don't certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I just know that uh, those that are convicted to judge uh, and have the talent and the capability and the confidence to do that. Um, I re- respect them for, for getting in the ring and doing it. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a talent pool coming up. They're just getting, they're getting slept on right now. I, I, I truly believe that like my, my, uh, pool, there's, there's a couple of really good hog judges in, in my age group right now. They just need to get that little tap on the shoulder to, to go judge a national show. And then we'll, I think we'll see some more people coming up in that pool, in that ring of judges for, for hogs and for everything. I, I think there's a lot of really high quality kids, not kids, I guess. I mean, I'm calling myself a kid then, I guess, but high quality young individuals that are coming up in the industry. And I'm not talking about myself. I, I do not expect to be tapped for any one of these. I'm talking about <laughs> other people. I promise. 
Well, now, the, I mean, the, the good news is, is there's, there's lots of shows and there's lots exactly. of opportunities. And, and I think to your point, we've, we've got to find a way to get those names uh, out in front of those that are, that are planning and organizing the shows that are looking for judges and, and they need experience, you know, they need a chance. They need to, they need, uh, they need exposure and the opportunity to get out there and sort and see what they can do. Last question. I want to know what you think is the most influential animal that you've ever had on the farm. The the most influential animal without question was Swagger. Um, yeah. That there's no doubt that it was Swagger, and uh, you know, I, I look back on on the decision to buy him. It was it was like a lot of my buying decisions. It was it was a gut decision. It was kind of on a whim. Uh, it, it wasn't planned. Uh, it wasn't carefully thought out. Uh, it was instinct. It was because a good friend of mine, Mike Jackson was at a pig sale with me and, and Mike actually found him. Uh, there were three litter mates in a pen. There were a whole bunch of people in this alleyway of the sale. And, uh, Mike said, Hey, let's, let's go look at this pig. I really want you to see this pig. I mean, we were in West Texas. We needed to get home. Uh, the last thing we needed to do was stick around at a live sale and, and buy a pig. So we got this, we opened the gate on this pen. These three, these three pigs ran like rats through all these people. And uh, it took us longer to get the three pigs back in than we actually looked at them. Uh, but it was very evident that one had some pretty unique uh, quality about him. Uh, the problem was in true Mike Clay fashion, uh, Mike's always liked to sell uh, the, the better pig at the end. I mean, they save all the consigners would save their best pig for the last round. So this pig was in the last round. Uh, Kip Smith bred the bred him. Uh, he sold in the last round of that pig sale. And, and Mike and I just, we just didn't want to wait. So literally we, we got in the truck, took off down the road. I called uh, my good friend, Mark Stanley. And I said, Hey, we'd really like to buy that pig. Uh, just get him bought. And I hung up the phone and Mike said, did you just tell him to get him bought? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, what exactly does that mean? And I said, well, it means getting bought. And Mike says, well, aren't you going to give him a budget? I says, oh, Mark will use good judgment. <laughs> so uh, I think he brought thirty-seven fifty dollars uh, in the sale. Um, Mark took him home from the auction. From there, uh, I mean, he, he wanted to die at Mark's, I'm sure. Uh, he got very sick. Uh, he was probably barely alive when he got on a trailer to go back to Indiana. By the time he got to Indiana, I mean, he literally looked like Fido's ass. Oh. Uh, and, uh, he was the laughing stock of Indiana there for a few days while Mike had him. And eventually he found his way back to Taylor, Missouri. And, and I'll be honest with you. He was, he, he was not a perfect pig by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, he was not the kind of pig that attracted a lot of attention, uh, from anyone that saw him. I mean, he was not a boar that everybody said, man, I'd love to use him or I'd like to try him or, or whatever. Uh, but by the time he got to breeding size, we really weren't equipped to collect boars here at the farm. And I sort of just made the decision, look, I'm going to send him to High Point, let our friends at High Point collect him. Uh, and so that's what we did. We sent him to High Point. They collected him. I I think maybe they bred one or two, I mean, just a handful of sows that first season. Mike bred a couple to him the first season. I bred several to him. Uh, I think I had a little more conviction than the other the other partners did, um, 
but it's funny how God works. You know, I, I bred some gilts to him that I thought were pretty nice. And, uh, but I was at a, I was at a point where I needed to, I, I mean, I needed to turn some cash and, and get rid of a few. And, and so a few of those bred gilts that were bred swagger were offered and, uh, they were offered in this online bread gilt sale and they didn't sell. I mean, people, not only did they not want to use swagger semen, they also didn't want to buy breads that were bred to swagger. So, uh, in a weird sort of way, um, I, I think it was all just part of the bigger plan, but I ended up with those bread gilts. We farrowed them. And, uh, one of those litters, um, resulted in the champion or the reserve cross and reserve grand barrel at San Antonio in 2012. Uh, another litter resulted in the reserve Hampshire at rodeo Austin the same year, sired by swagger. Um, so those were, you know, those were two of the very best swagger bears out of his first crop. Um, and you know, the rest is really history. Uh, by that point, uh, it was very evident that swagger had some unique quality and those pigs were just different. Uh, they, they had a different look, uh, their presence was different. Their athleticism was off the charts. Um, and they were, you know, they were just different at a time when really the industry needed that, that difference. And so, you know, we, we were, we were sitting on swagger. We had him and we continued to use him. And, you know, I think at one point, if I had really sat down and figured up, I mean, a huge percentage of our sow herd at one point all had swagger influence. And, uh, you know, he was, he was just that he was impactful. He was the, the kind of boar that, that made an impact that lasted a long time. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think I said it in the sow catalog last summer and it's, it's the quote that's on the, the carving that Jared Schliff made for me that he surprised me with the carving of swagger. And he, you know, he wasn't perfect, but I think, you know, breeding livestock always has had, for me, it's had more to do with convictions and believing in, in the kind of livestock that you like than, than it, than it makes sense. You know, it doesn't always make sense, but if you're convicted in what you believe, uh, and, and have the sort of staying power to see it through, uh, I think that, uh, you'll be rewarded and swagger for me, that, that was, that was his reward. I think he was nine, uh, when we had to put him down and, uh, that was, there's no doubt that was one of the saddest days ever for me. Um, but it was time and, uh, he sure didn't owe me anything at that point. Did you ever clone him? We haven't. No, no we haven't. We have a can, cell line, can but, you? but we haven't. Yeah, we, we can. Ooh, we interesting. Can. <laughs> we can. You're going to just, just not... wait, a, wait a few years and bring yeah. back swagger too, or what? I don't know. I'm just not sure that, uh, I'm not sure that we need to. Um, I don't even know. It, it's going to, the industry is probably going to change so much. He's going to look so different from what the norm's going to be in the next couple of years or something. I, we have no idea. No, no, we don't. I mean, I've got some frozen semen and, and we've got some, some flexibility that way. And there's still plenty of his influence. I mean, I've, there's two daughters in the, in the fairing house right now, the two youngest ones that I have, um, out of some of his last, uh, his last collections, uh, you know, they're still in production here, but he was, uh, he was unique. Uh, he was different and, um, incredibly influential to everything we did. And I, I think even probably beyond that, his, in just swagger, his, his name and his association with our brand, um, you know, made him as impactful as anything we've had here. 
I 100% agree. I mean, there was, you said it yourself. I mean, for those two years, two to three years, swagger was everywhere. I mean, swagger is still in a lot of people's operations, like in yep. everybody's. <laughs> like, swagger is everywhere, dude. Uh, I think, and that's, it always happens like that. I mean, you get all these guys with the boar stories, sheep guys with their buck stories. I mean, it always happens like this to where you're like, I wasn't even looking for anything. And then this is the, that's the, <laughs> the stud that, that builds your whole freaking brand. I love those stories. Yeah. Well, most of the, most of the best things that happen usually aren't planned. So yeah. Um, Agreed. Well, Jesse, uh, dude, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you guys just had state fair last week. Is that it? County, County fair. County, County fair, fair state, last week. State, state fair, fair this week. State yep. fair this week. I'm happy that it's happening. That's got to be exciting. It is. We're we're fortunate to have a have a governor uh, have leadership uh, in our state that that believes in believes in the Missouri State Fair. He was he was in the swine barn last year. Uh, in fact, my son made the comment that when he he heard the fair was happening and and saw the governor talk about it, he was he remembered when the governor was in the the hog barn last year. So he believes in the state fair. Believes in the process. I uh, thought it was vitally important uh for our state and for these kids to have the opportunity to compete and i'm thankful that that we have this chance so we're going to make the best of it well good luck to you guys good luck to your family and good luck to everybody that's going to the missouri state fair i hope it's a good one appreciate it yeah jesse okay i'll talk to you later and thanks again for taking time out of your day you bet all right bye thanks kenan time's limited so you must listen carefully Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Um, I, I want to have him on again, to be honest with you guys, uh, because I want to kind of go in deeper uh, into his operation. I felt like we talked a lot about uh, his background and, and his idea when he was kind of coming back into the industry after he took his his little like three-year break or whatever it was. But I, I want to have him on again, and I want to talk more about his operation and, and into more intricate details. Uh, and I think you guys would like that. But I hope you guys enjoyed uh, our conversation this go-around. Excuse me. Oh, my gosh, I just burped. Just ate dinner at Red Lobster. It was incredible. Uh, cheesecake, fantastic. I hope you guys get it. Um, so, okay, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, come back next week. I'll have a great great episode for you guys. Um, that's all I have for you this week. Enjoy it. Stay safe out there. I love you all. Check out barramedia.com. Check out all the podcasts. Be safe. I love you. Bye.